I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session. With our dad, Jason Crane. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 436 for the week of May 5th, 2014. On today's show, vocalist Hilary Gardner. Are you a member yet? For $5 a month, you get MP3s and other content with every single show, and your $5 goes directly toward paying for my trips to New York City to record more interviews. So, for example, when I go to New York City this coming weekend, it'll be folks like you, if you are a member, who've helped make that possible. Do you like what you hear on The Jazz Session, and do you want to keep hearing it? Become a member. It's that simple. Visit thejazzsession.com slash join to start. Speaking of ways you can help the show, you can rate the show in iTunes. You can also leave a comment on the post for this very episode. If you have something you'd like to say to me about it or talk to the artist about it, it's a great way to get in touch with the Jazz Session. And did you know the Jazz Session has a store? Yes, it's true. You can buy music by many of the artists you hear on the show right in the Jazz Session store. It'll take you to Amazon, and a portion of your purchase price will go to benefit the show at no additional cost to you. And as a matter of fact, if you start at the Jazz Session store, you can buy anything you want after that. So all you have to do is follow any link from the Jazz Session store to Amazon, and then you can purchase anything you like, and a portion of your purchase price, no matter what it is, will come to the Jazz Session, again, at no additional cost to you. This is the last of the interviews I recorded on my last trip to New York City, which is, of course, why I have to go this weekend, so that there can be a show next Monday. I don't remember how or when I became aware of Hillary Gardner. Certainly, I knew her just, you know, in a the vague way that you understand that musicians are out there uh, long before I ever met her. And in the course of trying to make an interview happen, uh, a couple trips ago to New York City, we couldn't quite work out the interview, but we ended up hanging out in a coffee shop anyway for a little while. And I just instantly knew that this was someone I I wanted to know better. She's just a a wonderful human being. I'm super glad that we've uh, become friends and then even more glad that I was able to get her on the show eventually. So I'm excited to bring you this interview. We'll hear some music from Hillary Gardner and then uh, our conversation recorded in Brooklyn just a few weeks ago. Like the folks you meet are like to plant my feet on Brooklyn Bridge What a lovely view From heaven looks at you From the Brooklyn Bridge And I love to listen To the wind through her street the song that she sings for the town I love to look up at the clouds in her hair She's learned to wear a 
like a crown If you've been a rover Journeys and lies over the Brooklyn Bridge Don't let no one tell you That I've been trying to sell you My guest is Hillary Gardner, and it is really fabulous to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. This, uh, I want to talk a little bit eventually about your background. Often I don't do that with people, but yours is weird enough that it seems <laughs> like it needs to get brought up or I'll feel like we've missed, we've missed something worth talking about. But I want to start talking about um, your record, The Great City. And for me, I think it forms an interesting kind of bookend or companion piece to the Mel Torme album, Songs of New mm. York. And the particular song that I think contrasts the most and gets to what I like about the way you approach music is the song Brooklyn Bridge, oh. which on Mel's album is this really bouncy, like, hey, ain't the Brooklyn Bridge great? And on yours, it's kind of like this, yeah, this thing's going to haunt your dreams forever. <laughs> and and it really it brings out stuff in the lyrics that I never realized was there before, oh, because wow. there is actually a lot of pathos in those lyrics, which I never... I never heard because I mostly heard those up-tempo, hey, everybody loves right. Brooklyn. And so as I kind of in that context, listening to more of your work, it struck me that there's there's really something in you that seems to connect to the stories under the lyrics, even if you have to invent those stories yourself. And so I thought I'd ask you just about interpreting these wow, classic thank songs. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, with, with Brooklyn Bridge, I had actually, I'd never heard Mel Torme's version. I'd actually, the only version I'd ever heard was this very... Um, very sweet and very cinematic version that Frank Sinatra recorded for It Happened in Brooklyn, this 1947 movie that in which that song originally appeared. And the big hit song from that show was Time After Time. It was all Sammy Kahn and Julie Stein music. So there were a couple little gems that just sort of disappeared that slipped through the cracks, and Brooklyn Bridge was one of them. So I, I didn't have much of a context for what that song should sound like or how other people have, have, have done it, which was actually quite a, a gift because then we just got to do whatever we wanted to with it. It comes from an honest place. I, I love Brooklyn. I, I live in Brooklyn. I love to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. And there is, um, and in fact, it's probably the crux of the whole album, there is this duality with these, these iconic, picturesque, filmic kind of moments and landmarks and icons in this city. And it also can be a really brutal, difficult place. And sometimes that, that loneliness and that melancholy exist, you know, on a very sunny day while you're walking across this incredible, iconic structure that has inspired songs and movies and so, I mean, I wasn't consciously trying to, uh, to paint a picture of, you know, of pathos and, and right. deep human passion on the Brooklyn Bridge. But um, I definitely wanted to evoke that little bit of, of sadness that always exists in really beautiful moments and happy moments in our lives. Because there is something kind of fleeting that tugs at your heart a little bit, even when you're very happy. Do you think if you honestly sing songs with New York as one of the major characters that you kind of can't help but but capture many different facets of human life? I certainly think it's built that 
all those different facets of human life are built into life in New York City and probably consequently the music themselves. Yeah. The music itself, I should say. Yeah. Um, do you, does being here and I mean, you've been here for a while now, has being here changed just the way you sing, the way you approach music, mm. the nature of kind of who you are as a musician? Well, I was 12 when I moved here. I mean, I wasn't 12. I was, right. I was seven, seven, yeah. obviously. <laughs> no, I, mean, I was, I, I really was green as grass musically. I mean, I had done some singing. I lived in Seattle for a number of years before coming to New York and I had done some singing, you know, but it was very casual and I wasn't super serious about it. And I mean, when I look back on it, it's just that special kind of arrogance slash idiocy that people in their early twenties possess. I mean, I was not scared in the slightest of coming to New York and becoming a singer. And now when I think back on it, I'm like, I, I was crazy. I was out of my mind. I knew nothing about anything. <laughs> and I thought I was going to come here and become a singer. So, um, certainly everything about, about the way I approach life, not just music, but everything has been informed by my time in New York. But that's also been, I think, a that's also been growing into myself as a human being and as an adult. I mean, I felt in many ways when I came to New York that as difficult as it was, you know, it felt like a homecoming of sorts. So it's less of a transformation maybe than sort of becoming oneself, becoming myself. Sure. Who you were always supposed to be. Yeah. And you, you've become yourself kind of in the context of this music that mostly happened, uh, you know, long before Mm -hmm. you were born, but but it feels very real and very honest. How did how did that happen in the first place? Um, well, a lot of the music, I mean, a lot of the music was before I was born, but a lot of it also was not so far before I was born. I mean, on, on the record, you know, there's a Joni Mitchell song, there's a Tom sure. Waits song, there's um, there's a song from the 21st century that Anjani Thomas and Leonard Cohen wrote, and, well, and a Nellie Mackay song. So definitely... Um, the the songbook the great american songbook it's a huge part of my my musical biography but it is not the only the only part but um i just love the uh i do love the stories in the great american songbook canon but also the i'm most intrigued by and drawn to the songs that are not my funny valentine and all the things you are you know there are so many little little hidden gems that like brooklyn bridge like uh, this little town is paris that are super evocative that really paint a picture that really tell a story and for whatever reason we just they never became as famous as some of their other you know, some of their musical cousins and um so those are the songs that i'm most drawn to and how do you find those songs here there and everywhere i mean i like kind of the deep cuts of 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 albums you know as a kid my parents had a really good vinyl collection and so i was fortunate to be exposed to albums and that was definitely something that i was seeking to to create when I made this my first record, I wanted to make an album, you know, something where the whole was greater than the sum of its parts that, you know, the songs um, certainly mean something and stand on their own, but taken in context and, and the way that they're juxtaposed with the other songs, you know, maybe there are different layers of meaning and, and interconnection. So I'm very interested in that kind of connective tissue between, between songs and themes and ideas. So, I just kind of cull from, you know, what records did I really like as a kid? And, you know, I loved Dan Hicks growing up. And one of the songs on the record, Sweetheart Waitress in a Donut Shop, 
while it came from, you know, Dan Hicks, who I loved and listened to his music for many years, was from an album that I didn't know at all. So, you know, some of it was very research driven. Sure. And then, you know, some of those songs are just ones that I've, I've known for years, like um, When the World Was Young. I've wanted to record that since I was 19 years old, but thank God, in, in one brief moment of foresight and self-awareness, I knew that I wouldn't be ready to <laughs> sing it for quite some time. You know, even then I, I knew I had to save that one for later. So I and seek them out and I stumble upon others and some sure. I, keep, I carry in my back pocket, you know, metaphorical back pocket for years on end and... Yeah, and, and we know each other a little bit in the outside world and, and certainly on social media. And I often see you say things about some artist you've just discovered or some composer you've just discovered, or which it seems like you're always in the process of following some trail from one person's work to the next. I, I, tr I try. I find that it's really easy to get out of the that childlike joyful habit of just listening for fun, just getting inside an album because it's great and it might not relate directly to anything else you're doing in your life. Once music becomes a job, you know, it's like, I've got to shed this tune because I have this gig coming up. And it, it, it gets harder to just kind of lose yourself for the sake of discovery. So I've, I've been making a more conscious effort to allow room for that, even if it's just, you know, a half hour falling down the rabbit hole of YouTube, you know, jumping from one... Yeah. artist to another or how many different versions of this weird little song can I find and enjoy I danced with a lot of men fought in an ugly war gave my heart to a mountain but I never loved before I'm nervous when you turn away My heart is always sore Tuxedo gave me diamonds But I never loved before Been on the road forever I'm always passing through But you're my first love and my last there is no one, no one after you I've lived in many cities From Paris to L.A. I've known rags and riches I'm a regular cliche I tremble when you touch me I want you more do you feel like you're part of a, a particular scene here in New York in the in the music world? Hmm, that's a good question. I think I sort of leapfrog from scene to scene, which has been just a great stroke of, of good fortune. I've got a lot of kind of eclectic gigs. I mean, I sing every Tuesday with a swing band in on restaurant row and there's a whole community of really diehard swing dancers and um and musicians who really know the history of that music and you know I love big bands I've always loved big bands and so that I would come to New York and wind up singing with so many like I didn't even know there were that many big bands that still existed let alone that worked let alone that I could sing with you know so I've sung with a bunch over the years and and actually wound up 
singing with one on Broadway at one point, um, which is, you know, it's a dirty word in, in the jazz world, like <laughs> Broadway. <laughs> but it, it was a, it was definitely a, a case of, of, of an innate kind of lifelong enjoyment of this specific kind of, of music, of swing music, of music that people dance to and just kind of following my nose and following my ears and enjoying that leading to a great, a great gig and a great experience singing in, in this Twyla Tharp show called Come Fly Away, which was all Sinatra music. So I, I would say I, I definitely have a toe in the big band and swing scene. But I don't know. I mean, singers, it's a, it's a vast community of singers and I found it to be enormously welcoming and supportive. Um, it's taken me a long time to sort of feel like there's a niche that, that maybe is a, is, is a good place for me. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I don't consider myself the jazziest of jazz singers, you know. I'm not motivated instrumentally. I, I don't aspire to take a solo that a saxophone player would say, man, that's a killing solo. Like I do love the stories. I love the lyrics. And I, as, as you know, we were talking about earlier, like this idea of connecting songs and presenting them in such a way that maybe, you know, they speak to a larger idea when taken in context. So that's what motivates me as a singer, which, you know, that, that starts to smell a little bit like cabaret, which frankly, I'm a little bit allergic to though, musically. So there's a lot of gray areas. Yeah. So maybe that's my scene as a non-scene. I don't yeah. Know. You know, and I've um, certainly I've spent more of my time with and listening to instrumental musicians over the years. Just it seems to be the world that I have found myself in. But as I've become friends with singers, I've discovered that in New York, there's an entire, as you said, a community and also an entire group of venues and, you know, regular Wednesdays here and Tuesdays here and Thursdays here that are like vibrant and well attended and a lot of cool music is happening that honestly I went years without even knowing existed. I mean, it seems like there's a whole world of cool vocal music being made in New York that you kind of have to meet somebody who knows about it. And then all of a sudden you realize, Oh, a lot of people know about it. It just wasn't, I didn't. Yeah. Which I think is also true of if you got really into bluegrass or, you know, Western swing or reggae or I mean, whatever, anything, that's the amazing thing about this city. There is a whole scene where people are super dedicated and super motivated and whatever that particular scene is all about, you know, whether it's music or sculpture or poetry or any, you know, it's happening at a very high level. So it's, it can be sort of daunting and overwhelming, but it actually, it's also very exciting. When you first came here, how did you, f- did you know people? How did you even go from it's your first day to now I'm singing? Um, well, yeah, I I had one friend that I stayed with while I found you know a place to live on Craigslist or whatever, and then I was also acquainted through a, a mutual friend. I was acquainted with Mike Longo, who's a pianist who played with Dizzy Gillespie for many years, and he had a big band, and he invited me to sing with with his big band, and it was really a baptism by fire. I mean, Mike. Not only did Mike's charts, you know, when the arrangements that he was writing. You know, he wasn't babysitting me at all, but he actually was sort of going out of his way to put me through a boot camp. I mean, you know, Mike would throw in a couple of modulations and it would be, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200. We're not setting this up. Ta-da, welcome to your new key. And I just had to grab it and hang on for dear life and, and get through the rest of the tune. I mean, his charts were really not easy. And so, you know, I had that 
privilege and sometimes nerve wracking <laughs> experience of being a singer for Mike's band. And the great thing about being a big band singer is that, you know, you walk in and you meet anywhere from 10 to 17 people at a, you know, at a shot. So that was where I started to really meet, meet musicians. And then I just, and just to stay on yeah. the, the Mike Longo thing for yeah. a minute, what, what musical equipment did you have to deal with that situation? I mean, how did you, how did you go from, Oh, I'm just kind of singing in Seattle casually mm -hmm. to, well, now I'm working with one of the better arrangers in New York doing really difficult music. Um, I, well, I studied with Mike for, for a while. Um, so that, that always helped, you know, sort of have a little one-on-one -on -one time with him where he would be you know, giving insights as to how to come at some of the music. But, you know, a lot of it too was that um, he is such a great arranger. He put a lot of what I needed to know, you know, on the page. I mean, it wasn't, I, there was no faking my way through it, but if I really sat down with the music and, you know, wrote out subdivisions so I could figure out. I mean, a lot of it was painstaking because it, it was not work that I'd ever done before. I'd never had to do it. I'd never had the opportunity to do it. Um, so, you know, I, I would spend time on my own, like writing out subdivisions to try to count out these rhythms by the way that these guys were just sight reading in an instant. And, you know, so I, I did a lot of sort of excavating on my own to try to get inside the material. And... Um, yeah, he's just kind of learning on the job. It sounds like a super useful place to start. I mean, it, many other things after that must have seemed at least a little less daunting. A little after less starting daunting. There. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he um, he didn't make it easy, but there were um, there were so many great moments of um, I don't know these little gestalts of like, oh, that's why that's why this works. You know, I mean, Mike is very very driven by. Um, by counterpoint and you know a huge part of the way that he would arrange for his big band or he does arrange he still has a big band that's active but he creates um a groove and sets up these different sort of rhythmic behaviors by layering you know lines on top of one another so it's not propelled by a drummer you know it's not the rhythm section isn't really driving the band it's everybody kind of locking into this groove and then you know through polyrhythmic ideas and a lot of, of counter uh, contrapuntal lines between, you know, horn sections, you really get deep kind of a rhythmic thing happening. And, um, that was a pretty fascinating way to actually experience music. I mean, experience, I say more than understand, cause I still, you know, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty heavy stuff, but, but there's something I think that happens on a cellular level when you have someone who's as heavy as Mike saying, here, try this. You know, it was, sure. I, I always would say that singing his charts were sort of like, it was like wearing a, a stunning couture gown that somebody made like just for me, you know? And it's not that like, I mean, to really extend the crappy simile, but like, it's not as though my body was so perfect and I was just like the perfect model for these clothes. It was that the, you know, the designer was so excellent that it just brought out the best, not only in, yeah. you know, certainly not just in, in me and all the musicians. It yeah. showcased everybody. If ever you're restless and you're feeling low, don't think that the city is the place to go. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Where 
these play balls, they're always around to help build your hopes up and help drag you down. They'll leave you with nothing worth singing about. So And so from there, did you make connections uh, both in the band and kind of at gigs and that kind of thing that helped you start doing your own? Your yep. Own yeah, there were a lot of, there was a lot of big band work. My next sort of gig was I sang with Valeria Ponomarev's big band and actually wound up going to Moscow for a bananas weekend of gigs with Valeri. And you went to Moscow for a weekend? Uh-huh. <laughs> Four gigs, three days. One of the gigs was for a KGB birthday party on you a know, boat. like you do. Just, yeah. you know. Um, and then, I had a dollar for every KGB birthday party I did. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's exciting stuff. It was amazing. <laughs> and um, also around that time, I, I wound up going back to school. I was waiting tables because that's what <laughs> that's what you do when you're 24 and you move to New York City. Um, so I was waiting tables, and I was waiting tables at a very, very loud, busy restaurant. And I actually um, got a little bit of a, a vocal injury. It was, it was kind of a pre-vocal injury. It was not terribly serious but from having to just to shout to be heard exactly exactly and um so two things became apparent i needed a new job and i wanted to get back into the rigor of classical vocal study which i had done a lot of you know from the time i was 12 years old and i had gotten halfway through a classical voice degree on the west coast before deciding that i was pretty unhappy and i dropped out and that's when i moved to seattle and started singing jazz mostly just because i wanted to have fun doing music which i hadn't but at that time, I hadn't had fun singing for a long time. So I was fortunate to find an incredible, incredible voice teacher. Her name is Nova Thomas, and she just she changed everything. She changed my life, my approach to singing. She completely helped to rehabilitate my voice. And, and uh, as she herself would say, we co-authored a vocal technique that is the bedrock for every style of music that I've sung since I started working with her. Will you say more about that? Say more about how she she changed your technique and your approach to singing? Well, one of the first things that Nova said to me was um, that she didn't care what I sang. She cared that I sang. Mm. And that was really, really profound for me because, you know, in the past, the teachers that I'd had had, had really been pretty insistent on a classical direction. And I love the fundamentals of classical singing. And I think actually that the bedrock of any really solid vocal technique is going to come from a a classically derived technique. But Nova was the first teacher that I ever had who would talk about the difference between um, technical demands and stylistic demands in terms of, of the music. And that it was possible to maintain technical integrity while still satisfying the stylistic demands of whatever you were singing. So she understood that in fact, when I'm singing with a big band or with even just a rhythm section, you know, that a lot of that's going to call for straight tone 
you know, no vibrato um, or using vibrato differently, that it's going to call for using uh, the ratio of head to chest voice a little bit differently, you know? So she was the first teacher I ever had who didn't sort of insist that if I came at jazz, it had to sound like a, you know, an opera singer singing jazz music, which as we all know is excruciating. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, I love Jesse Norman so much. Her, you know, her frowned Liebundleben rendition, they just, they, they make me weep. I never want to hear Jesse Norman sing Gershwin. And it's because of that. It's, you know, it's a different vocabulary. And Nova was the first and, and really only teacher that I've had who really understood that and, and respected that, you know, so she's a, she's a brilliant woman and she's a brilliant teacher. And she also said, I hate these guru relationships where, you know, a student has a teacher and the teachers who gets their voice warmed up and, and they kind of, it, it gets a little worshipful, sure, you know, and, and in fact, I have had some dysfunctional teacher-student relationships, and Nova said, we're not going to do that. This is your voice. This is your technique. You have to take responsibility for your own vocal health. We are going to co-author a technique that makes sense for you so that you can be healthy and sing whatever you need to sing. So how did you find Nova? Was it luck? Did you seek her out? How did that work? It was It was both. I was working with, um, with a small jazz ensemble, and we played the occasional wedding gig and um, some gigs around town and the bass player in that group was married to a very prominent, uh, Broadway singer who, um, who generously gave me the name of her voice teacher and he was unable to take on any other students. And obviously he didn't know me from, from Adam, but he said, listen, I, I, I know somebody who I think would be a great fit. And so I called up Nova on the phone and we wound up talking for about an hour and had our first lesson. And after one lesson, it was, it was very clear that it was just a wonderful fit. Once you you two have co-authored this vocal technique, mm. is that a is that something you have to constantly work on or refine or remind yourself to do, or does it eventually just become it just becomes the way you sing? This is just this is how my body works now and how I sing. I mean, at the risk of sort of repeating myself, like it, it's both. I keep sort yeah. of saying that, but <laughs> you're asking really good questions because they're they're nuanced and and certainly a vocal. I mean, I don't purport to be an expert on, on vocal technique. I mean, I did go back to school with Nova's guidance and I finished a classical voice degree at the same time that I was, you know, waiting tables 40 hours a week and singing jazz gigs on top of that, you know? So I definitely sort of went through the fire of, of having to learn how to keep my voice healthy. And, and, um, what I came away with, you know, vocal, my vocal technique anyway, is not static. It's not fixed. You know, um, the blueprint, sort of the, 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 the ground zero of where you start and, and sort of my, my map for what a typical warm-up feels like and looks like is pretty consistent. But depending on, you know, I was singing, um, I sang Popea in Monteverdi's Coronation of Popea. And it was, um, you know, it's an early music opera. And so, like, the demands of that role and that piece were very different than um, when I was doing the Broadway show, for example. And so while the basic principles of the technique were very similar, you know, I clear space and, and open up the head voice and then I activate the chest voice and then do a bunch of exercises that kind of integrate them. And that's always the same. But there are, there are differences based on what I need to achieve for what I'm working on at that time. And when you say the demands are different, are you are you back to talking about things like 
the way vibrato is used or the ratio of head to chest voice or those kinds of things is that are those the demands that are different absolutely and i mean for example when i was doing the the broadway show and it was all big band stuff you know it was a 17 piece big band it was a big stage it had to um it had to be elegant and i wanted it to, i wanted the voice to stay supple and relaxed and healthy because we're talking about you know six shows a week six days a week i mean it, it's a lot of it's a lot of singing um but it did have to have heft and meat, you know, and, and the yeah. voice had to have weight and it had to cut through. And, and so, yeah, I mean, my, the exercises that I did at that time had a lot to do with, um, with bringing the head voice down lower into the middle and chest register so that there was a warmth and a roundness to the sound and a richness. Mm. But that also served to keep the voice flexible so that that constant use didn't kind of, you know, batten it down and make it driving and, and, and harder. So when you're on this, the album that we're talking about, it's a much more intimate setting than that, musically speaking. Much more, yeah. And so what do you, what do you need from the people who play with you to make that a success? Mm. The guys on, on the record are all my good friends. And um, my, my husband, Eli Wolf, actually produced the album and was very helpful in this way as well, where we all just kind of, we actually sat down before we went into the studio and we kind of talked about what we were going for with this album. And we all sort of got on the same page. So it was a matter of wanting to make, you know, I used the, the phrase like a classic vocal pop album you know, sort of in the vein of some of those great old Peggy Lee records or even, I mean, even like the Ella Fitzgerald songbook records, not that I'm saying for a nanosecond that my name should ever be in the same sentence as Ella Fitzgerald, but you know, the difference between her Colt Porter songbook, for example, and then some of the records that she did that were much more like jazz sessions, right? The Colt Porter song, all her songbook records, the solos are very short. There are arrangements. I mean, it still feels free and playful, but it really is about the song and, you know, it's kind of short and sweet. So we all kind of got on that same page. That that's what we're doing. Like, we know you guys can just blow for days because you're endlessly imaginative. And, you know, every single guy on the record is a virtuoso in his own right. But we were just trying to do something else. And, and they are such wonderful human beings and such wonderful musicians that they just got it. And, and we all just kind of went in together with with that in mind. How long did it take you to arrive at the repertoire that was going to be on the record? Hour, hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my life, my lifetime, basically. Um, well, you know, it was a combination. Like some of those songs uh, were ones that I had wanted to record for many years. And then there were others that I just sort of stumbled upon that I realized, Oh my gosh, this would be great for this record. And, and my husband, um, acting, you know, in the, he's, he is a record producer. That's what he does by profession. It was our first time working together. I'm happy to report it went great, but he was really pivotal. Yes, you're not referring to him as your former husband. So exactly. That's, that's a good sign. <laughs> exactly. Thumbs up. <laughs> exactly. Um, but hmm, sirens. Yeah. It's a, it's a busy day here in Brooklyn, but he was very helpful in, um, in asking me, to really think about, um, you know, some other artists whose, whose records that I, that I loved and responded to and why, you know, and what I wanted to say and, and to really allow it to kind of be a free association at first, you know, find 30 songs that you really like and then narrow it down. But the biggest thing that, that he kind of helped me do, he sort of gave 
he, he didn't give me permission, but he gave me permission to give myself permission <laughs> to do exactly what I wanted to do with a sure. record, which was a very scary thing, you know? And once, once I sort of felt like, all right, I, this is mine. I'm going to do it. I have a green light. This can be whatever I want it to be. It, it came together really quickly in terms of the repertoire and, and the sort of the focus of the album. But that comes from, you know, I love, I, I like to, to write and I love literature and books. And so in that way, the album has, it was approached very much with, with that in mind. And, and as we, I was, you know, sequencing the, the songs, I was very much thinking in terms of a literary arc more than just a musical one. And then uh, my husband and I went back and forth a few times, you know, because he was at first just thinking really in terms of a musical arc. And then we wound up putting everything in order in such a way that I really feel like the album wound up telling a story. So, you know, that was definitely the guiding the guiding force behind the songs that were chosen. It's time to end my lonely holiday And bid the country a hasty farewell So on this grey and melancholy day I'll move to a Manhattan hotel I'll dispose of my rose-colored chattels And prepare for my share Of adventures and battles Here on the 27th floor Looking down on the city I hate and adore Autumn in New York Why does it seem so There's, I think, a, a very telling quote printed on the inside of the record. Can you tell us what that is? Mm. It's um, from E.B. White's essay, Here is New York. And um, I think it's even on just page one of, of the essay. No one should come to New York to live unless he is willing to be lucky. Yeah, that's, it's true. It's, it's a true, true quote. <laughs> and, you know, musicians, uh, after having interviewed so many of them, Everybody always talks about, oh, I was very lucky, and usually will never say things like, man, I just worked my ass off to get to where I am, and mm. that's how it worked, you know, and I'm smart, and I'm very talented, and those kinds <laughs> of things, because people feel uncomfortable about saying that. But as much as it's true that false modesty often leads people to say they're lucky, it is also, seems to be also true that luck does play some kind of role, because in a city this densely packed with talent, it can't be purely talent, or even purely hard work right. that allows people opportunities sometimes you just meet the right person it seems like is a fair way absolutely i mean i think what always has resonated with me about new york city is there's this incredible sense of possibility here that when you walk out your front door anything could happen and i mean anything like something truly horrible and random and something just wonderful beyond your wildest expectation and I, i think that that's sort of true anywhere but there are so many um i mean 
I came to to read that E.B. White quote because when I was visiting New York right before I moved here, I was waiting to buy a cupcake at a very busy bakery, and I sort of made eye contact with this guy, and we started like laughing at this, the absurdity of all these people waiting for cupcakes, and we struck up a conversation. And he was a um, he was a journalism grad student at Columbia University, and he said, listen, I, I, you're going to move here soon. I, I want to get you something. And we walked across the street to a bookstore, and he bought me that E.B. White little book, Here is New York. And it was such a – and then, you know, he, he inscribed it and shook my hand and wished me all the best and went on his way. And it was just this incredible little moment of, of generosity, and it, was, it felt very um, – sort of indicative of what was to come in New York, you know, if you, and that's what I love about that E.B. White quote, though, it's, he talks about being willing to be lucky. So there is, of course, you know, luck is very important, but I think this idea of being willing to be lucky, of saying, all right, I'm in, what do you have today, New York, you know, I'm yeah. going to take this weird gig because I, it's Wednesday and I have nothing going on and, you know, maybe it's there that you meet somebody that you collaborate with, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will tell my most recent bizarre New York moment story, which was last night I was walking up Franklin Avenue in Brooklyn and was talking on the telephone and there was a guy in front of me and the person I was talking to was talking. So I was quiet. And then I said, but, and at the moment I said, but the guy in front of me was about three feet in front of me, four feet in front of me, whipped around and came at me fast, like really angry and then he just realized I was just some guy. And he said, don't be making noise behind people like that, man. <laughs> and I laughed because I didn't, I mean, I was so taken aback by him like charging at me. Yeah. And I said, I'm just, I'm just on the phone, man. And he, so he walked past me, young, young guy, younger than me even. Um, even <laughs> you can be a young guy and be way, well, there's a lot of room <laughs> to be younger than me. Um, Anyway, so then ahead of him, about five more feet, was another guy about my age or a little older. And he turned around as soon as that guy walked past me and just started yelling at me about talking on the phone. But he was kidding. And it was awesome. And I just started laughing so hard. (laughs) How dare you talk on the phone in New York City? And it was great. And I just – in that, I was – the person I was on the phone with – um, was kind of taken aback by the whole sure. thing and is not a, not a huge fan of New York. And I said, like, that right there is why I love this city. Because mm-hmm. in about 10 seconds, a guy charged at me for talking on the phone. And the guy ahead of him just made a joke and we had a nice laugh and kept yeah, walking because absolutely. of that. And that, that's, not a real, that's not an example of being lucky. But it is just an example of that of putting 7 million people on a couple of islands – there are constant opportunities for bizarre interactions. All these atoms bouncing against each other, weird things happen. Without a doubt, definitely. Yeah. And it's an, it's a never-ending source of wonderment for me that this city can at once just be so vast and so busy. And as you say, all these atoms bumping up against one another and then also feel like such a small town. I mean, walking down, you know, 7th Avenue in the village from sort of jazz club to jazz club, you know, you run into so many people that you know. And I mean, I just, there are so many different little lifetimes. I, I, I will have been in New York for 11 years next month. Well, this month, actually. It is, it is March. Yes. And um, yeah, so it's over a decade now. And I feel like in every neighborhood, you know, on there's so many different little lifetimes 
that I've had and the city continues to sort of reinvent. And I, I just, I love that that's possible here. I am from a small town so that, you know, it wasn't possible where I'm from. And I think there definitely is, if you come from other places to specifically be in New York, there is a sense of taking refuge in that. In the, I, I've often remarked, I think that one of the most wonderful things and one of the most awful things about New York is that nobody cares. But I remember being here when I first moved here and I was just, you know, I was exhausted. It's sensory overload. I mean, I came from like, you know, this very, the, the cool, placid, green mellowness of Seattle and, you know, plopped right down in the middle of New York City. And I was waiting tables constantly. As we talked about, my voice was a mess because I was waiting tables constantly. I was in school. I mean, I was just exhausted and something or other had happened. It was just a bad day. And I had to go to work, but I was just so upset and I kind of had to get that out of my system before I had to go into work. So I sat down in the middle of Bryant Park in this beautiful sunny day and just sobbed for like five minutes, just ugly cry, get it out of my system. And it was so wonderful that, you know, a, a woman walked by and she just kind of paused, is everything okay? And I was like, yeah, it's just a bad day. And she's like, all right, have a, have a good one. You know, and she kind of kept moving and it was, it was this wonderful sense of nobody really, it didn't matter. It wasn't a spectacle. It wasn't embarrassing. It should have been perhaps, but it wasn't a big deal. It was just people got it. Like, no, you, I get it. The city will do that. Have your cry. Just wanted to make sure that you hadn't just been like mugged and now right. I'll be on my way, right. you know? So it's, it is, it's beautiful and, and awful. Nobody really cares, Yeah. but it's freeing. In fact, isn't there some line? Like I feel sorry for people who are from New York cause they don't have a New York to run away to. Yeah, exactly. You, know? you, um, you mentioned being from a small town and it's true that you are from a small town, but you're from a very, very unfortunately famous <laughs> Small town. One might even say notorious. <laughs> yes, I think I think one might. Yeah. The only thing I know about it is that it's possible to see Russia from it. <laughs> um, so can, I, we don't need to spend too much time talking about the actual place itself, although we should tell people where it is. But it's just like so many things. It is surprising to me when anybody from as far from where we're sitting right now mm. as you are mm. is ending up sitting where we are. Yeah, right now. Yeah, and I'm just curious about how you you even knew. To think about doing that. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the town that shall not be named <laughs> is, um, is Wasilla, Alaska. And um, I hate that I'm doing this, but I have to say that it was, in fact, Tina Fey who said she could see Russia from her house. Oh, did she really? It uh, was okay. not, that was not Sarah Palin. I mean, I, I just, I can't, wow. I can't bear to be defending Sarah Palin. But, um, but what she actually had said was that Russia can be seen from land in Alaska. And that is true. That is true. But um, certainly not from Wasilla. It's a yeah. landlocked place um, in the south central part of the state and um, it's a glacial valley so I grew up surrounded you by just these. factually corrected a, a, a Tina Fey Sarah Palin discrepancy on the jazz session that is I a know. first it's appalling we have never gone down this road before <laughs> on this show I oh, always, it's always nuts. nice to find one first in each interview and I didn't really think this would be it <laughs> but we definitely have just broken happy to new help. territory yeah, yeah. always wow. great to have you on Hillary <laughs> yikes I know it's just uh. You can't escape the... So how, how small a small town is it? It's not as small as, as you might think. Um, yeah. On paper, it's very small because the population figures that we sort of see, you know, I think people were saying, it's like, oh, like 5,000 people live there or something. But those 
numbers are a little misleading because they reflect city limits. But like we have to understand is like I didn't grow up in a place with sidewalks. So this whole idea of city limits, I mean, there was a moose in my driveway, city limits, right? you know, so nobody lives in the city limits. But I mean, there were three high schools where I grew up. There were a couple hundred kids in my graduating class. So, so it's a normal size. Yeah. No- I mean, it's, you know, it's certainly not New York City or Los Angeles. You know, it's not a big city, but nor is it totally, you know, sure. Mayberry. Right. Two people in one general store. It's not that exactly kind of thing, right, right. But um, I don't know. As far as how I got how I got here from there, there were two things that I think are really, really formative. Um, I mean, I, I was always drawn to New York. Long, I didn't visit New York until I was twenty two or twenty three. Was my first visit, but up until then, I kind of always knew I was going to to come here, and that grew out of you know, books when I was a kid, you know, I loved going to the library and there was a wonderful series, um, a children's series called all of a kind family. And it was about this family of, um, a Jewish family on New York's lower East side in, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. And I loved those books. And I was so fascinated by the, um, the confluence of, of, of cultures. And, you know, I love food writing and, and well, I love to cook and I love to eat. And these books had a ton of really interesting stuff about, you know, Jewish soul food, basically what I now know to be Jewish soul food at the time, it was sort of exotic. And, sure. um, so that book and a tree grows in Brooklyn was, was the other book. Cause I got a little bit older that I just, I knew I, I, every little girl thinks she's Francie Nolan. <laughs> I mean, that's why that book is so enduring and, and powerful and true, you know, but that was a huge one. So books were a huge part of what drew me to New York City. But then the other one, oddly enough, the other influence was Tom Waits, who's, you know, it died in the wool Los Angelino. So it, there's a, it, it's not totally a straight line, but we had his Nighthawks at the Diner record mm-hmm. that I first heard when I was like 12 years old. And it was just so, I mean, it painted this sonic picture of neon signs and late nights and smoke curling around dingy bar fixtures, you know, and just this seedy urban underbelly. And I just remember being a preteen going like, I want to be there. And, um, and that was a big part of it too. Did you, um, this is a question I usually, I often ask on this show, but was was there for you some moment where singing and and a love for music changed from here's a thing I like doing to here's a thing I think I'm going to try to actually do as the thing I do? For better and for worse, I actually never even thought about it that deeply. I never questioned. I mean, I just, I always sang growing up and it was the thing that I always, you know, I, I liked to do more than anything else. And I was fortunate in that my parents, um, my parents were very supportive of that. And, you know, from the time I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I was, you know, in a competitive choir singing with the Anchorage opera. And, you know, so I, I was able to be exposed to music at a pretty high level from a pretty early age. And so I always had, you know, very good mentors and people who were very encouraging. And, um, when I, went to college. I, w- I lived in Italy for a year after high school. And then I came back and went to college for two years in the Pacific Northwest. And I was studying classical voice and I was deeply unhappy. And that was kind of a little existential crisis, I guess, because this was something that I just had always knew- known I was going to do. And all of a sudden I was just very unhappy. But I think I knew on a gut level too, that it was a place and time issue more than a, a music issue. So I just, I dropped out and I-, I moved to Seattle and I started working in restaurants and singing jazz for fun and just to try to have a good experience making music again because it had been a while since I'd had that 
And um, one thing just kind of led to another. I mean, in hindsight, I, it would have been far smarter and in some ways probably a lot better for me to have had that drive and that motivation. I'm going to do this and make my living and study really hard and blah, blah, blah. You know, because it wasn't easy to go back to college in my late 20s and work full time and try, you know, and try to get a bachelor's degree that, hi, nobody cares about anyway. And, you know, I, I continue to do study and work on my own on things that people who, you know, went to conservatory for jazz have known since they were 19. Sure. You know, there, there are holes in that education, but it never was a decision. I just, I think if it's in you, you just do it. Yeah. And nothing that anybody had said or, or done probably would have made a difference. It was just what I was going to do. Do you have any kind of um, kind of as we draw to a close here? Do you have any kind of idea about what the future needs to look like for you to be kind of content with it, musically mm-hmm. speaking? It would be really delightful if the industry continued to take shape, or it began to take shape in such a way that like artists could still make money. I mean, I would love to see in my fantasy, a a culture that actually placed any value whatsoever on, on the arts in general, but on music, you know, it's just, it is, it is so difficult to make a living and that's not a pity party and that's not whining, but you know, even in the past decade, what we've seen in the music industry, it's, it is harder than ever. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's just been this systematic kind of devaluing of, of what musicians do and, and what we bring. I mean, there was some, there was a letter that went viral recently about a, a music, Whitey, I think his name is an English composer and, and DJ or electronic musician. And he was approached by a, a network about using his music for a show. And, and they said, you know, unfortunately there's no budget for music. And he wrote this scathing response about how, you know, you have a budget for everything but the right. musician, you give them nothing. <laughs> like, this is mine. I made it. You want to take it. That's theft, you know? And, and there's a lot to that. And I don't have any answers. I mean, it's, it's a very multi-layered, complex issue. But 
being able to actually make an okay living doing something that I think, you know, I think music is important. I think it's an important part of being human, not just my music. I mean, I think music in general, yeah. we need the arts in our lives. And so I would love to see sort of a sea change in the way that we collectively value it. That would be great in the much more easily attainable and short term. I just, I am pretty content. You know, I, I am finally kind of getting to a place where I'm comfortable with the kind of music that I, that I'm making that I want to make. And I get to, to sing with friends and, and meet people like you and, and make music in New York and beyond for people who do, who do care about it. And it's a, it's a good, it's a good life, you know, don't get health insurance, don't get paid vacation. But, <laughs> but most of the time I feel like, you know, I'm getting to at least do a version of what feels very true to my, to my heart and to my calling. So it's, I'm fortunate. My guest is Hillary Gardner and the album is called The Great City and it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being Thank here. Thank you so much for coming to Brooklyn. This little town is Paris Now that I'm here with you Each little bench is amazingly French And the trees Parisian too This little town is Paris Now that I know you're mine Even the air is a foreign affair And the coffee tastes like wine The world I found wasn't good when I stood there alone But now at last you found me And you grace every place I have known That's music from the wonderful Hillary Gardner. Thanks so much, Hillary, for being on the show. Remember, you can support The Jazz Session by becoming a member. $5 a month gets you MP3s and other exclusive content with every episode and goes directly toward paying for interviews like the one you just heard. Visit thejazzsession.com slash join to get started. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo. If you need a bio or a press release or other writing for your artistic endeavors, please visit cranewrites.com. Cranewrites.com, where I do exactly that kind of work. Thanks so much for listening. Come back next week for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.